Hi and welcome to Off Grid once again with me, Void. And me, Dave. We've solved the cryptic crossword, poked it about a bit and seen what words felt interesting to us. And we're going to tell you about those. We are also going to tell you our favourite clue each and how it works. It'll all make sense whether you've done the puzzle or not, so don't worry if you haven't. But if you are interested in breaking off to go do it now, this episode we've solved a Paul puzzle from The Guardian, namely number 28677 from Thursday the 10th of February 2022. And we'll have a link in the blog to that for you. We will also have a short quiz inspired by some words in the puzzle, courtesy of the ever-present, the ever-wonderful General Knowledge. How are you doing, General? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Oh, well, couldn't do it without you, really. Clues, then. Let's read you out our favourite clues, and you can have a think about them, and we'll come back to them a little bit later and explain how they work. So, General, what was your favourite clue, please? So, I like 26 across. Did content of B-Day, career from behind, five letters. And Dave? I went for 17 down. Working range where pans filled with stew originally, which is five and three. And what about you? I went for seven down. Carry out check on trouble in joint. Eight letters. We will revisit those in a little while and explain how they all work to you. But first off, we're going to the general to tell us what was your favourite word in the puzzle that gave you an idea for a subject to talk about? So I picked 12 across, which was STOA, S-T-O-A. Uh, this is a new word for me, and it means a, a long portico or colonnade in ancient Greece. And as with any new word, I decided to look up its etymology. And I wondered, oh, could this be related to Stoicism in any way? The answer, yes, it was. Stoicism was named as such because its founder, Zeno of Citium, not to be confused with Zeno of Alea, who devised the tortoise paradox, used to sit in the, I'm going to butcher this, sorry, Greece, Stoa <laughs> Picile, the painted passage in Athens, delivering his lectures. And Stoicism is also called the philosophy of the porch. And now, of course, Stoicism, being the pursuit of virtue in the face of moral corruption and misfortune, is a revered school of philosophy, which prompted me to think, what else is named after such everyday things as colonnades from ancient Greece? Okay. So we can find more examples in philosophy. So cynic ultimately comes from the Greek for dog, kion, cognate with canis and hunt in German and things like that. From that route, we also somewhat counterintuitively get the Canary Islands. Yes. Because that's, those are actually the Isle of Dogs and not the Isle of Dogs. Yes, Canary and then the, the birds were named after the islands, isn't that right? Oh, right. I okay. think so, yes. yes. Some thought that uh, cynics were perceived to be aggressive or uncouth, like a dog, but that's not quite it. Cynic comes from the temple Kinosarges, or white dog, and the legend was that there was a white dog that would come and whenever people were on their way to make sacrifices this white dog would steal their offerings and there was an oracular message saying that there should be a shrine to Heracles built on that spot and the philosophy is named after that because Antisthenes used to give lectures on cynicism in the colonnades of the temple. Ah. Another philosophy is Peripatos 
coming from peripateticos, or to do with walking, which was founded by Aristotle and named as such because Aristotle used to walk through the colonies teaching his disciples. Other, other philosophies will come from the places where they were founded, like uh, Milesianism or Megarianism. Um, but it's not just philosophies which we get from random bits of Greek. So I thought of uh, our metric feet, iams and dactyls and such like. Yeah. They're all from Greek words. Iams were originally used primarily in satire with hiemi meaning to throw, implying a sort of attack or a jab, which is where we get I am from. Trochees come from trecho, meaning I run, as the sound supposedly was resemblant of running. Dactyl, uh, of course. Is, te- I know this one. This yeah. is <laughs> finger because it's the lengths of the of the um, yes. the beats or or like the lengths of the bones in the finger, aren't they? Yes, three finger bones, three syllables. Uh, anapest- so is that a long, long short? Uh, dactyls. Um, I think long, short, short. So I think so. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Anapests come from anapestos, meaning reversed or struck back as a reversal of the dactyl. Bondies come from spendo, which meant to um, to give a libation, as that was used in songs you'd sing in um, ceremonies in temples. And the pyrrhic, which is two short syllables, comes from the same root as fire in Proto-Indo-European. That's something like purr, as it was made to resemble a fiery war dance. I could go on. Well, checking as to what the lengths of the beats in the dactyl were, if you said the anapest was like the dactyl only backwards, that confirms that's one short, long, short, long. two shorts, because obviously the anapest is the rhythm of the limerick. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and so on. Ah. And you mentioned Pyrrhic as well, so that's Nothing to do with Pyrrhic victory, named after Pyrrhus the general. Well, uh, he would have been he he would have been named after fire, uh, something to do with fire. Okay. Is this is this the same Pyrrhus that was uh, also went by Neoptolemus, or are we thinking of different Pyrrhuses? Um, in the the Neoptolemus I know was the son of was it Achilles? So fictional. And Pyrrhus oh, is right. the uh, historical general. I'm thinking. Of. Oh right. Is there a, is there a, a real Neoptolemy? Neoptolemus? I, I don't know. Okay. You're probably much more well versed in classics than I am. Um, we also get the modes of the scales in music from places in Greece and Turkey, Ionia and Doria, back Lydia. to columns, um, columns, back to columns, Ionic and Doric columns. But of course, Lydia. Corinthian. Yeah. <laughs> Ionian, Dorian, Phrygia for Phrygian. Lydia gave us both Lydian and Mixolydian. Iolia, Iolian, and Locria gave us Locrian. But funnily enough, none of those modes as we know them come from those places. The Renaissance scholars who decided to name our modern modes got the Greek names quite wrong. So what we know as a Phrygian mode comes from Doria. What we know as a Dorian mode comes from Phrygia. The Ionian (laughs) comes from Lydia, and so on. Don't ask me. So I'm not familiar with those uh, musical terms. Can you just sort of give us what uh, give us a quick overview of what they represent? So they they are the 
the modes of the major scale. So Ionian is do 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 do, and then Dorian would be do 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 do, and you so on and so forth. They they're different scales with different emotions, and they were all used well as they're originally known. They were used in those places in ancient Greece, but then something went a bit wrong. <laughs> So, I mean, but there are loads of words, of course, that we get from Greek, but also that we get from Greece itself. So, lesbian comes from Lesbos, where Sappho spent a lot of her time writing about being lesbian. And our Olympic Games, of course, were... I have a joke about Sappho. Sorry. It's gone over my head, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we, we don't have very much surviving from Sappho, and it tends to all be in fragments. I see. Uh, of course, the Olympic Games originally played on Olympia by the gods of Mount Olympus, according to mythology. And as we know... 776 BCE, I think, is the yes. first recorded one. About then, anyway. And of course, in modern times, those Olympic Games would include the Marathon. Yeah. Which is named because Philippides, the messenger, ran, supposedly ran from Marathon all the way to Athens without stopping to announce the return of the Syrians before promptly collapsing and dying. To be laconic is to be succinct in speech, as were the inhabitants of Laconia. But what I find quite funny is how... And that's um, also uh, because Sparta was in Laconia, so you can say Spartan as being terse and, and brief as well, mm-hmm. as laconic, so it's two words meaning the same thing derived from the same place, more or less. Something I find quite funny, though, is uh, how Greek mythology, which underpins so much classical civilization and from where the Greeks derive so much culture gives us quite mundane everyday words in English. Like our Atlas is from the giant who held up the entire earth on his shoulders. Lethargy were um, originally meant forgetfulness. Yes. From the river Lethe. Where the dead would drink to forget their past lives. Mm-hmm. We get the word, I, I did not know this, we get the word panic from the frenzied state that humans would supposedly be in when the god Pan was around. And, of course, tantalising comes from Tantalus, who, as a punishment for, I think, eating his own son, was it? Oh, I can't remember what he did, but I remember what was done to him for it. But... Yes, he was placed just out of reach of food and water for eternity. So they were tantalisingly close. Mm. So yeah, we get a lot of perfectly everyday English words from the epic tales of ancient Greece, which I think is quite funny. Brilliant. Dave? Right, my clue, if you remember, was working range where pans filled with stew originally, 5-3. And here, stew originally just means the origin of the word stew, which is to say the letter S. And that needs to fill, i.e. be put inside some word for pan, which would therefore need to be seven letters. And that turned out in this case to be skillet. And the reason I picked this one and the clever bit, I think, was the phrase working range, which in the surface meaning suggests operating a large cooking stove, but which needed to be read in the cryptic sense as the range or gamut of things that you are capable of working at, which leads you to the answer skill set. I think that was nice, precise selection of words for the definition part. 
Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. A nice sneakily hidden definition. Yeah. Yeah, me yeah. too. Now, Void, what tickled your fancy in the grid? I went for the rather innocuous phrase, handed over. And I'm going to tell you a little story. In 1994, I was working in a shop and we had a delivery. So I opened the box and it was full of yo-yos. And my reaction to this was, ah, right, we sell yo-yos now, do we? Fine. <laughs> it wasn't your normal wares then? Well, it was, it was a juggling shop, so it's on the periphery. Okay. But uh, it did suggest to me that uh, I suppose I'm going to have to learn to yo-yo now, am I? Because, you know, if I've got to sell them, then maybe I've got to learn to demonstrate them. Yeah. So I did. And to cut a long story short, because this isn't actually the point of the story, but nine years later, I ended up becoming the British yo-yo champion. As one does. And this, uh, you know, as you do. I, I will admit that this was during a bit of a lull in the British yo-yo scene, and <laughs> the, it wasn't. It did coincide with a bit of a low turnout at the competition, but you know, a win's a win. Everyone who is there, a win's a win. Yeah. So after this, I started going back to yo-yo events because I've been to a few and then not not bothered for a few years. And at the two thousand and eight British Championships. I went along, which were in London, and I met and interviewed Don Robertson, who was an old yo-yo pro and entertainer, because he'd been invited along as a special guest. And going back to where I started in that box of yo-yos, his face was on the packaging of the yo-yos that were in that box. Right. I had bumped into him 10 years earlier at another event, where he'd done a little... Uh, a little demo at a yo-yo launch party during the the great yo-yo boom of 1998, which I'm sure we all remember, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just before the great yo-yo bust of 1999. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Funnily enough, I could tell you a whole other story about that, but yes. So anyway, we had a nice chat, um, and I was, I was interviewing Tom, and he told me some of his stories about how he'd got into yo-yoing through having been a toy demonstrator, which I guess was more or less how I did as well. Um, and he told me some of his stories from his brushes with showbiz, which okay. were interesting stuff. And I will link to the interview in the blog so you can watch that if you like. Um, but he also told me how Lumar, which was a yo-yo company, organised a European Championship in 1953. He'd already been signed up as a demonstrator and had been learning his craft in yo-yoing in this year. Right. And he entered this championship and he won, which gave him the title of European Yo-Yo Champion. And then he said, which I've hung on to ever since, because uh, this was 2008, I was doing this interview. Mm -hmm. So Don had been the reigning yo-yo champion for 55 years up until that point, which is pretty impressive. You might consider that it may have had something to do with the fact that there had not been another mm. European yo-yo championship Held Until... in the intervening time. <laughs> yeah. But a win's a win. A title's a title. 
So, Don, amazing European Yo-Yo champion over 50 years. So, I put this video interview out on the net, and the Yo-Yo crowd got to see it and watch it, and they got talking amongst themselves. And although in recent years there had been events that had been called European Yo-Yo meets, where they've been, you know, just social events and trick swaps and maybe the odd competition in there, there hadn't been an actual European championship as such. But the Yo-Yo has decided, well, maybe it's time there was. So the upshot was that they decided to have another championship, and that did happen in 2010 in Prague. And you might think, oh, that's a shame. Don is going to be robbed of his of his title. And by this point, Don was 80. Right. So he'd, he'd had a good reign. But the nice thing, I thought, is that the organisers of this new championship invited Don out to Prague as the special guest to present the prizes and to hand over his title, which is where we came in. <laughs> in modern yo-yoing, there are actually different styles, different categories of yo-yoing. So you, you'll probably all think of just a quote normal yo-yo being thrown and maybe the string being manipulated. And that's called 1A. 2A is where you have a yo-yo in each hand and you're constantly keeping them in motion in looping patterns. And there is also 3A, where you have a yo-yo in each hand, but you're doing string tricks with both of them. But you also have a free hand, where the yo-yo is not attached to the string. So you have the string wound up on the yo-yo, but then you throw it upwards. It comes off the string. You catch it back on the string held between your hands and then do various string tricks and then throw it up and whip the string back into the yo-yo to catch it up again. Crikey. And there's also yeah, and there's also counterweight where the string isn't attached to your hand but has a small weight at the opposite end of the string to the yo-yo. So you can do throwing stuff with that. Um, so there were lots of divisions competed for at this new championship. And I'm not entirely certain if there was a champion crowned in each division, but not an overall title. So, I mean, theoretically, Don might have still been the undisputed champion. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I, I will link to a write-up of the uh, of this competition. Sadly, Don passed away in early 2020 at the age of 91. His daughter, Vivian, who I also met, said that he was still capable of performing tricks right up until the very end of his life. Because he was a magician as well. Right. Uh, I only met him a couple of times, but he was uh, a real gent. So uh, R.I.P. Don, and uh, it was nice to be able to tell your story in off-grid. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's quite impressive, spending, what, well over half your life being the undisputed <laughs> yo-yo champion of Europe. Yeah. yeah. Once you have a title, it's for life. Mm-hmm. You know, Even if someone beats you the next year, you know, I, I, mean, I can still say... I'm the British yo-yo champion. Brackets. Asterisk of 2003. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was one. Yeah. A British yeah. yo-yo champion. Yeah. Does it does it come with any sort of trophy? Do you get your name engraved on anything? I didn't get a trophy that year. What's the point? Oh, that's, 
Well, yeah, I, I got some prizes. I got a, I've got a T-shirt which I still have from a company that's since gone bust, and, company, and a yeah, pat yeah, on the head. Yes, very nice. <laughs> yeah. I won the UK yo-yoing championships, and all I got was this damn T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I'm still friends with the uh, the chap Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Who organised the competition that year? So maybe I should get him to make me a certificate. <laughs> <laughs> Print you some out. Do you know? Sign it. I think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to send Aaron an email. General, you want to come back and uh, explain how your choice of clue worked? Sure. So 26 across. Did content of B Day career from behind? Five letters. Now, I like any clue with a misleading surface. Uh, usually that's to do with words having several meanings and you need to think of different meanings than what's actually suggested. But also I like where the stress pattern of the sentence is completely different when you read it from as just a regular sentence and actually as the clue with every indicator and everything. So when reading out this naturally, you'd phrase it as a question. So with a like a rising sort of tone at the end and you'd emphasize content b-day and career maybe and the clue reads completely like a question but actually actually when you know the the passing of the clue you emphasize did and from behind more did here is our definition from behind is a reversal indicator so we reverse b-day career to get re-rack to dib and the content (laughs) (laughs) and the content of that is acted or did. So yeah, an, a nice reverse hidden, one of my favourite types of clue, put concisely and sneakily. Yeah, yeah. well it's a very short definition part that you can easily kind of skim over mm-hmm. and not yeah. notice, isn't it, where did. Exactly. Yeah. Dave, what do you want to talk about this week? Okay, well the answer to one across this time was hey-ho, with the hey bit spelt in this circumstance, H-E-I-G-H. Which made me think Well, let's say, what have these names got in common? Jumpy, Deffy, Baldy, Burpy, Puffy, Stuffy, and Swift. The Uh, rejects of the Seven Dwarves. Ding. Spot on. These were all in the shortlist. Wow. uh, At Walt Disney Productions for potential names of the Seven Dwarves. Was it in the original story? I think they got it from a, a Brothers Grimm story and the dwarfs didn't have names at that point so uh, when Disney were putting together the film. Well others in the running were included Dizzy, Hickey Wheezy, (laughs) Gabby, Nifty Sniffy, Lazy, Puffy Stubby, Tubby, Shorty I'm not sure how that one was going to (laughs) work Shorty for a dwarf imagine how short they are. Sporty, scary, baby ginger and posh (laughs) <laughs> no, hang, on, hang on a minute not those not those last five now sorry about that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was the first film to have a commercially released soundtrack album this was January 1938 and it was released on three 10 inch shellac 78s um, and no in case you're wondering I haven't got a copy <laughs> right, the, the grandmother of a friend of my dad's recently found I was uh, into collecting records and said she had masses of uh, many, many boxes of old 78s. And 
Most of them seem to be calypso tunes and uh, sort of <laughs> also some Zydeco and stuff from the Caribbean and mm. Southern America. Uh, I don't think any of them are the Seven Dwarves soundtrack, but I can check. <laughs> Very possibly not. No, I've, the ones that I got, I think I inherited from my dad, and I think he may have got them from somewhere else, and there was like a two-piano version of Rhapsody in Blue and things like that. Anyway, any clarinets? Any clarinets? None. It was a piano version. <laughs> anyway, side B of the Snow White soundtrack featured the two songs that the dwarfs sing in the mine and then on their way home, which was Dig-a-dig-dig and Hi-ho, which they definitely pronounce Hi-ho when they sing it. Right. But it has always been spelled H-E-I-G-H-H-O, which I think most of us, if we saw it written down, we would pronounce Hey-ho. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's certainly the pronunciation that Paul's using in his homophone wordplay of his clue. Yeah, I never um, knew it was spelt like that. I just always thought of it as hi ho. I suppose I, I, I would have guessed H I H O, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah I've always assumed H E Y when I've heard hey ho. Yeah, well, hey ho is oh, a for phrase the phrase I, rather than the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a phrase that I use a lot in writing, and I normally spell it H E Y H O. So I thought I'd, I'd go and have a quick look up at what, if any, differences there were in usage and and meaning between those two spellings. And it turns out that although the two have ended up kind of merging together, there was originally a distinction. And the H-E-I-G-H spelling was an expression of weariness, disappointment, and so on, which is the meaning that Paul's using in the clue and the meaning that I generally use. You know, oh, well, that's gone wrong. Hey-o. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. Yeah, exactly. And the H-E-Y spelling, which was more of a sort of nautical refrain to match the rhythm of repetitive work, like hauling, much the same as heave-ho. Okay. Ah. So really, I should be spelling it with an H-E-I-G-H when I use it. But it makes me think, if the H-E-Y spelling is associated with the rhythm of repetitive work, which is for sure what the dwarfs are doing down in their mine, and the H-E-I-G-H spelling is associated with weariness which is how they feel at the end of their working day, they could potentially sing the same refrain in both situations and just spell it differently each time. <laughs> it's good. But I've, I've always wondered whether the lyricist was bothered by the fact that the singers are pronouncing it hi-ho, whether he meant it to be pronounced hey-ho when he wrote it. Who knows? Not me. Yeah. On the subject of dwarfs and alternative spellings, what do we think about... Dwarfs versus dwarves as the plural. I've always done. I've always done it with a V. I don't know what's correct, but that's what I. I, I think this is something I only recently found out, like in the past month or so. Right. So I think dwarves is a dwarves with a V, is a recent coinage as a plural. Correct. Yeah. Almost. Traditionally, dwarfs with an F was always the standard and more common plural. It's Tolkien Mm. who popularised the dwarves with a V spelling. He didn't actually invent it. I think there are instances in sort of 1880s or something like that, but not very Uh, many. It was Tolkien that I recently read had, quote, invented the plural with a V spelling. Yeah, I think I've seen in, in the OED's kind of earliest citations there are other mentions spelled that, but you know, most words have had variant spellings in their history, especially when you go back far enough. 
Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned the Google Ngrams viewer a few episodes ago. It's interesting to look at the graphs, or interesting to me at any rate, for the two spellings <laughs> on there. At the start of the last century, yeah, it was dwarfs all the way. Almost nobody using the dwarves spelling. But dwarfs with an F has been in gradual decline since the 1920s. While dwarves with a V got a brief uptick in the 30s, presumably uh, buoyed by the publication of The Hobbit in 1938. I'll give you a point. Seven. (laughs) (laughs) And then a steady increase since the late 1970s. And I suspect perhaps that might be the reprints of Lord of the Rings to tie in with the Ralph Bakshi movie in 78 or and or the BBC radio series in 1981. And maybe Dungeons and Dragons becoming popular from and the all that sort late of stuff 60s. As, yeah, it could yeah. be as well, yeah. Sadly, the data available for Google Ingram's graphs tails off in the mid-2000s. But just before it does, you can see the dwarves spelling experiencing another spike and really catching up to the dwarfs spelling by around 2004 Uh Aha, hello Mr Jackson Which might be Mr Jackson's doing, yeah absolutely But at any rate, Tolkien Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings film director listeners Yes, for those who hadn't tweaked Uh, At any rate, um, Tolkien himself admitted in letters that he knew the spelling he'd used was non-standard and more than once, helpful staff at his publishers had tried to correct it to dwarfs. <laughs> he said that if he'd had the courage of his convictions, what he really would have gone for, or should have gone for, for historical etymological accuracy would have been Dwarrows. D-W-A-R-R-O-W-S. See, that has so many crosswording possibilities. Yeah. Absolutely. Arrow at the end there. Yeah. I'm sure you can get the DW in various ways. Yeah. I mean, it looks like in Old English and Early Middle English, the, the singular was more like dwerch with a G or an H or a yog. And so... it, only, it only acquired the F sound by around the 14th century or so. There's a Scots word for dwarf, which is droich, which retains that sound. So dwaro, is that, does that have a sense of digging? Because ancient burial mounds were called barrows. Barrows. I wonder if there's a connection there. I think it's probably a coincidence. But, uh, yeah, it's nice nice to think. But anyway, if you want a massive rabbit hole to disappear down, I suggest you go looking up the origins of the Snow White story. Oh, Disney got it from the Brothers Grimm, and there are variants throughout European folklore and possibly an inspiration in a real-life 16th-century German countess, Margarita von Waldeck, and possibly even similarities to bits of, going back to your Greek mythology, there's uh, Keone, which I won't tell you her story. You can look that up for yourself. It's not a great one. Um, but her name means snow, which kind of ties in as a possibility. Uh, and that's told in Ovid's Metamorphoses. But I'll leave the interested listener to get tangled up in all that f- malarkey for themselves. Instead, Void, what about your uh, choice of clue? My favourite clue was carry out check on trouble in joint. So seemingly a, a medical story there in the surface, uh, or possibly a woodworking story. Carry or out. Or maybe something's going wrong in a bar. Oh, yes. You need yeah. an investigation. 
That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, good with that. A sleazy dive with things going on that shouldn't be going on, yes. Carry out, in this case, is do. Check is vet, as in we're going to check the backgrounds of the applicants for this job. On in a down clue, which this was, means simply on top of. And then trouble was ale. So if you put do on top of vet on top of ale, you get dovetail, which matches the definition of joint in a woodworking sense. Yes, very nice. Time for a quiz. So, ten across was part of the phrase how the other half lives, but by itself, we have half-lives. So my question is, what is the median half-life of a radioactive isotope? Note that this was manually calculated from an incomplete list of radioactive isotopes on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, right. Hang on. Median. Which one's that? That is the middle. It's the The one one in in the the middle. middle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we get some that are very, very short and some that are enormously long. This is another one of these estimate the the middle of 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 a huge range things, isn't it? Yeah, so how many are ridiculously stupidly long and how many are ridiculously stupidly short? Yes. Which which way does it sway and whereabouts in the middle should we plump for? Hmm. Um, so I guess we should say for the listener, in case they don't know, the half-life is defined as being the time which it takes for half of a... Re- piece of radioactive material to decay so in other words if you have a kilogram of plutonium how long will it take for that to decay away until there is only half a kilogram of plutonium left indeed but now we have to magic some numbers out of the air (laughs) i i think the the bias is going to be towards the hugely long ones don't you i'm not sure I mean, a hundred years popped into my mind just as a figure based on nothing, and now I want to think, do I think that's long, or do I think that's short? And it feels long to me. So I'm going to take a wild stab at eight years. Hmm. Over to you. Dave, what are you going for? The really long Half-Life ones, perhaps there's not so many of those. Mm. Yeah, maybe the fact that some of them are like thousands of years, it doesn't matter so much if lots and lots of them are like um, fractions of a second. I'm going to risk going high and say 100 years then, the 100 years that you thought about to start with and decided against. Okay. The answer is quite a lot shorter than that. It is 4.07 seconds. Oh, dear. (laughs) Which I thought was a nice sort of... Yeah, that's quite short, but it's it's a nice measurable amount of time. You could you could see it happen, but it's not so. Yeah, it's not it's not a femtosecond or something. No, quite. Yes, or a yoctosecond or whatever the hell those are. That (laughs) is um, lead one hundred eighty five m. So next question, fifteen down was sonatize. Can anyone give me the rhyme pattern in letters of a Shakespearean sonnet? Bonus points for Petrarchan sonnet. Oh, oh, right. Well, this Christ. is 14 lines, isn't it? Shall yeah, I compare I... the two a summer's day is uh, 
probably the most famous Shakespearean sonnet. Is that number one? Let me think. My guess would be you've got three sets of four in A, B, B, A, and then a CD on the end or something like that. I might go for A, B, B, A, C, D, D, C, A, B. Hang on, that's so enough. You've only, you've only <laughs> got ten there. You need another stanza of four. Oh, <laughs> okay, A, B, B, A, C, D, D, C, A, B, B, A, C, D. No idea. So uh, you've you've both actually more closely described the Petrarchan sonnet, which <sighs> goes A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, D, C, D. Uh, Shakespearean sonnets tend to go A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F. GG. Uh, so, uh, shall well. I compare the two of summers? Day would be the A. Thou art more lovely and more temperate would be the B. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May would rhyme with the first line. So, A. I've forgotten the fourth line. So, question three. 24 down was Oahu. There are eight main islands of Hawaii. How many can you name? Ah, oh, so the correct answer to this question is a number. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it is. <laughs> okay, let me think. Uh, Call them out. Well, Hawaii. Yeah, that's one. Also known as the Big Island. That's right? a big I one. Think that's the same one. Mm. There's Oahu, which obviously we, which we get for free. That's where, well, that's where everyone lives. That has Honolulu. Right. Right. Now I know there's there's Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are both uh, mountains slash volcanoes. I'm wondering if those are actually yeah, the, the ones names with, of islands. ones with observatories on them and stuff, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. But I don't think they are the names of the islands. Waikiki's a beach. <laughs> so perhaps no, my answer is two then. You got yeah, your Yeah, I I've not got any more. No. So we, we General, get a, we get a point you... for the correct answer being two. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe General, you, before you tell us, do you yeah. think that we will recognise some of the names of ones we haven't said yet? Probably, but maybe one or two. Maybe I think I'm more of a US geography nerd than most people. Okay. So from Hawaii on westwards, we have Hawaii, Maui. Again, I'm watching these. I was going to say yes, Maui. Maui. I recognise that one. Kahala Awe, Lanai, Molokai, Oahu, Kauai, and Niihau. Well, uh, hang on. Kauai is Japanese for cute, and Niihau is Mandarin for hello. But I don't be spelled I think differently, spelled, right? Yeah, K A U A I and N I apostrophe I H A U. Okay. And bonus question How do you say Merry Christmas in Hawaiian? Hmm. I'll give you a clue. It's based it's... on English. I was going to say, this is one of those questions that you have to think, why has the question been asked? Because it's <laughs> yeah. Christmas. Now, is it a case of the the language sounds not matching? Yes. So the new, the new language would give its own version of some of the syllables. Like how so, in Japanese, I think McDonald's is Makudono Rudo. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, there so, are certain rules in Hawaiian. So I think we'd probably take the... And there's a limited number of vowels as well, isn't there? I think. I'll give you one rule. Every consonant must be followed by a vowel. Yeah. So, Mary 
Kimasu. Kimarasu. Not too far off. They um, they don't have any S's, actually. So S's get turned to K's. Ah. R's turn to L's. And we end up with Mele Kalikimaka. <laughs> Mele Kalikimaka to eat. It's very good. Oh, brilliant. See, if you'd asked for Welsh or Breton, I might have managed it, but there we go. <laughs> well, there we go. Cool. Very good. Excellent. Right. I think it's time to put the bunny back in the box. Thanks for joining us for our 18th full episode. Give us a like and a review at wherever you get your podcasts. Or if they don't let you do that, then tell your friends about us via tweets or Facebook posts or hiring a billboard or something. Leave us a comment at offgrid.tlmb.net where you'll also see all the notes and links relating to this and past episodes. Or, of course, you can still follow us on Twitter where I'm at Skirwingle and Void is yawning his head off. <laughs> well, that was going to leave in the edit, but hey, I'm at the Void TLMB. You can also use the hashtag OffGridPod if you fancy. General, anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners this time around? I would recommend you follow the Twitter account at GA underscore I'm sleeping as well as primarily the blog go-away-I'm-sleeping.blogspot.com. And I, I think you should follow on Twitch at go-away-I'm-sleeping for some uh, occasional crossword streams. Oh, the importance of a catchy URL, eh? <laughs> yes. We will provide links to those recommendations so you don't have to type them out. Or remember them. (laughs) (laughs) That too. Uh, Thanks so much for helping us out, General. No problem. See you all next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was Off Grid. Thank you for listening once again. Hello to our new listener in Norway. Tusentak. Thank you to Paul for the puzzle. And thank you to the Trudy for our theme tune. Join us in a fortnight. If you're still listening, hey, I'm going to try out a new solving competition. If you're free on the evening of the 2nd of March at 8 o'clock p.m. British time, then drop me an email at solve at tlmb.net to say you want to take part. It's free. And there'll be a £10 charity donation prize for the winner. All you have to do is solve a crossword and answer a question at the end of it. If you're listening to this on the 3rd of March or later, that email address doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, hopefully it'll be fun. Cheers. Bye.